0: Chapter 2 is where we're picking back up this morning. We're looking at verses 3 and 4, and I was sharing with a few of our gentlemen this morning some of the dangers in looking at verses 3 and 4 by themselves, and I want to share those dangers with you so that you can be aware of them. They're practical instructions from Paul for the life of these Christian Christians in Philippi. And the danger when we look at practical commands in the Bible can be to think that we're only looking at works and only talking about behavior change and behavior modification uh, apart from our relationship with Christ. And so I want to lay out that warning right at the beginning and try to tell you that that's not the goal today. It's not to look at these practical practical commands of Paul and, and read them as do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. It's to understand that they fit into our entire faith in Jesus and serve a purpose in that regard. Ultimately, these verses, specifically 3 and 4 of Philippians 2, help us to shine as lights in a dark world. That's the, they're practical commands, but their point is so that we might better reflect Jesus to the world around us. These specific instructions in these two verses are timeless and also incredibly timely for us today. Our world is one in which fighting is commonplace. And selfishness is commonplace. But God's people follow a different path. And Paul lays out that path in verses 3 and 4 for God's people. And we don't just follow that different path just for the sake of being different. But we follow that different path for a couple of reasons. To honor God. Two, because we know that more joy comes in right living before God. But three, because such living, countercultural as it may be, helps us to advance the gospel, to show the character and the nature of Christ to a world that is lost and dying. So, as we come to verse 3 and verse 4, let's not just look at them as things to do and things not to do. Let us understand that these are things by which our lives are to be conformed and molded and shaped because we already possess saving faith within us. And as our lives are conformed and shaped and molded by these things, we're better able to proclaim to a dead world the saving message of Christ. Now, Let me just remind us very quickly where we're at in Philippians 2 before we jump into those two verses. Paul is talking about unity in the church. Now, at the end of chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, he's talked about unity in the church in the face of external opposition. Uh, Hostilities from the outside world come bearing down upon the church, threatening upon the church. And Paul says, your response to that needs to be unity. You need to stick together, stand together, press on together, those sorts of things. As we get into chapter 2, verses 1-2, well, all the way really to verse 11, Paul's looking at unity in the face of internal pressures and internal conflict within the church. In other words, he's he's wanting now to talk about our unity in terms of our relationship with each other. In chapter 4, verse 2, he's going to explicitly mention these two women by name. They seem to be prominent women, at least they have enough influence to Lead the church to potential fractures. Euodi and Syntyche are their names. They're divided. It's producing division. Paul wants to write in chapter 2 of Philippians to already lay the groundwork to avoid that, avoid that division that might creep up. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, he's mentioned four areas that are common, ordinary things for every believer encouragement in Christ, comfort from love. Participation in the Spirit, affection, and sympathy. He says, since these things are true, or if there's any trace of them being true in your life, well, they should produce and yield certain results, certain fruit. And that fruit is in verse 2 a supernatural kind of unity with each other. Literally, it's a one-souled kind of people. You're a one-souled people. Unified at the very core and depth of who you are. You have the same mind. The same love. The same spirit. You're in full accord with your mission and your beliefs. You're bound together. Divinely bound together. Now it's with that teaching in mind from verses 1 and 2. We come to today with the question of how do we accomplish that one-souled unity. What are the steps we are supposed to take? Well, that's verses 3 and 4. The ingredients of unity. Look with me. Let's back up to verse 1. Read through verse 5. So, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. These things mentioned in verse 3 and 4 are distinctly Christian characteristics. They're the things that make us Christlike. They are the... Necessary required ingredients for unity among the people of God. In fact, verses 5 through 11, Paul's going to lay out a very clear and very profound teaching about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, his his coming and living and dwelling upon earth. And he does so all for the purpose of bolstering what he says in verse 3 and 4 these practical imperatives, these practical commands. Now, I've divided them into three things. Two of them come from verse 3, and one comes from verse 4. Three ingredients. The first one in verse 3 is negative, and it's to put away certain fleshly traits within us. Put away certain fleshly traits, rid ourselves of certain attitudes. In verse 3, he begins with this strange literary construction. Do nothing. And it's strange because logically it doesn't make sense. Do is a verb that means active, activity. Nothing is the absence of activity or the absence of substance. So do nothing is a strange construction. But it's a purposeful construction. We use it in our language. Paul's using it purposefully in his language. He's meaning to be actively voiding yourself, actively removing yourself from yourself these certain traits. So that nothing is left. These traits are traits of the flesh. And they're good reminders when Paul tells us to do nothing, that the Christian faith is one that requires effort to be put forth by believers. Not to earn our salvation, but to be molded by the new impulses of that new faith within our heart. Now the first fleshly trait Paul mentions to rid ourselves of, to actively reduce to nothing, is selfish ambition. It refers to personal gain or pursuing personal advancement. We find it most succinctly summarized in the worldly motto, look out for number one. For Christians, I think it's much more subtle than just outward expressions of pride. I think Christians find selfish ambition most often expressed in quiet motives in the heart. Motives of personal gain, doing things for personal benefit, thinking of self before anything else. If we were honest with ourselves, I think we would both find and admit that we do things to look good. We say things simply to sound good. We serve others too often to be seen and praised for that that service. That's selfish ambition. Stephen Lawson defines the phrase as the idea of the a uh, kind of self seeking and self promoting attitude that creates division or even seeks and enjoys division. A kind of self seeking, self promoting attitude. Church, we must be on a special guard against such thinking. Not only because it's our default sinful nature, but because it's the sermon of secularization being preached to us from the world. Meaning that our hearts and our minds are under constant assault to care only about ourselves. And when that's the case, evangelism declines, discipleship declines, church membership declines, church unity declines. We live in a self-advancing world. And Paul writes to these Philippian believers, which was the truth even in their time, and says that's not to be the case for God's people, especially For God's people who must be unified together in the threat or under the threat of internal conflict or external opposition. Don't be a people filled with, tainted with, painted by selfish ambition. We have a plethora of examples of what selfish ambition looks like, right? We can look at just about any company in our context and find tears and blood littered all over the place from people who've been disregarded in the name of self-advancement. We can look in the family and find families shattered in the home because father or mother or son or daughter were consumed with selfish ambition. Friendships lost over selfish achievements (coughs) Churches have crumbled because her people only cared about themselves and not each other. I will tell you with absolute certainty God will not tolerate such prideful living among his people. Selfish ambition is the antithesis to church unity. It will rob us of all that is meant to be a benefit in Christ's community. And I believe God will sooner remove His Spirit from a church than let them play a game of superficial unity. If we are to have God's blessing, if we are to preserve and promote our unity for His glory, if we are to stand together in the face of opposition, if we're to overcome the attacks of the enemy with internal conflict, then church, we must, every single one of us, lay aside our selfish ambition and do so continually. The second fleshly trait he mentions in verse 3 is conceit. It could literally mean empty or vain glory. It's the sibling of selfish ambition often the reason selfish ambition exists. He's telling us that among God's people, there shouldn't be an overriding desire to be people-pleasing, pursuing the vain glory of the world. Jesus, in His time, often rebuked the religious leaders for this very issue. Because it wasn't godliness that they were pursuing or the things that lead to godliness. They were pursuing the applaud and praise of humanity. Vainglory. This is what happens when we care more about the opinions of others. We care more about pleasing man. When we care more about the applaud of mankind than we do about obedience to Christ. Christ. And if not careful, such things become foremost in our thinking. Charles Spurgeon said this about the subject of vainglory. He said, How much is done in the church out of vainglory? How many people dress themselves out of vainglory? The thought is uppermost in their mind how do I look? How many people give to God's causes out of vain glory that they may seem to be generous How often does a preacher polish his sentences and pick his words that he may be thought to be an able orator and an eloquent preacher it's all vain glory It's a wonder that God accepts us in any of our works at all In fact he never could if he did not see them washed in the precious blood of Jesus, for in almost everything from the lowest member up to the most useful minister of Christ, this vain glory will thrust itself in. It is true. We are prone to conceit. We're prone to puff up our own reputation and puff up our own status and seek the applaud and approval and the praise of Human beings, and live for the approval of human beings. Why are such things so wrong in God's sight? Why is it wrong to be ambitious selfishly? And why is it wrong to pursue the glory of the world? Why would Jesus chide the religious leaders over such things? It's because of a misplaced identity or a misplaced worth of your soul apart from Christ. It's when you think you deserve more than you actually do. We are tempted to be prideful about our worth. Well, church, unity will never last and unity will never take root if God's people are living in selfish ambition and pursuing vain glory. If we're fixed upon ourselves and not upon God, And so Paul writes in verse 3 and he says, rid yourselves of these things. The positive command in verse 3 comes at this transition with the word but, B-U-T, and it's given to be a firm contrast from the things previously mentioned to the things that are going to be mentioned. The second thing, second ingredient we find in verse 3 is living by a new standard. So we put away old fleshly traits. We're, we're now living by a new standard, living by a, a new measurement, living in a new way with a new attitude, and it's separated by this contrasting word, which meant, is meant to help us see and, and understand that the things previously mentioned in verse 3 are the things of worldliness, and the things going to be mentioned in verse 3 are the things of godliness. They're the things that belong to Christ. And so, if you're of the world, you'll be pursuing things like conceit and selfish ambition. But if you're of Christ, if you belong to Christ, you'll be living in a different way, according to a different manner and by a different standard. And what is that different standard? Where well, the foundation of it is humility. In fact, humility is the key point of verse 3 and verse 4. The instruction in verse 3, the positive instruction, is to count others more significant than yourselves. But first, Paul lays the cornerstone here of humility. What is Biblical humility. I find God's people tend to have a hard time to define it. In the time of the Philippians, the Greek speaking world that Paul's living in and writing in, humility was regarded as a weakness to be avoided. It was identified as cowardice, it was identified as being a pushover or being soft. And I think that same mentality is continued today. We use just different language. You hear today that uh, humility is like being a doormat where you simply just let everybody walk all over you and do as they wish. But that's not biblical humility. Paul defines what humility is in the example of Christ in verses 5 through 11. By verse 8, he's going to explicitly connect us with Christ by using the same word in verse 3 and verse 8. Now in the life of Christ, we find one who is indeed equal to God, isn't he? Who is God himself. And yet voluntarily, he treats others as more significant than himself. Though infinitely more important than any person he encounters, he lays down his own wants, his own desires, for the good of others. But strikingly, He doesn't do it just purely for them. He does it for the glory of God. What was the motivation for the humility of Christ? Well, certainly love for people is one of those reasons. But ultimately, it's to honor and glorify God. And in honoring and glorifying God, He loves people the most. So we can say, by looking at the example of Christ, that humility is not being a doormat. It is rather giving God all the credit for every good thing given and every good thing done through you and in you. It's not a doormat. It's being a funnel that constantly forces people's attention toward God. And off of self. So whatever good is in me. Whatever good is given to me. Whatever good is done through me. Is all credited to the account of God being gracious. That's what real humility looks like. That's what real humility is. It's God-centeredness versus self-centeredness. And Paul writes, and he says in verse 3, that must be the foundation for counting others more significant than yourselves. God-centeredness, not self-centeredness. Because when we live for the glory of God and the advancement of God, instead of the agenda of self, it is much easier to love others. In fact, it's the only way to love others. So he says, in that humility... Here's the instruction. Count others more significant. Now, that word counts, an important word in the New Testament. In fact, it's an important word in the whole Bible. It's a mathematical term, which normally wouldn't make sense to me, but it's a word that means calculation or deliberate action, deliberate choice, deliberate decision. Paul uses the word to refer to Jesus in verse 6, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped he will use the word referring to his own personal life in chapter 3 verse 8 when he says he counts all things as loss in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 4, he quotes Psalm 32 that we read earlier and says, Blessed is the man whom God does not count his sin. In all of those examples, it's a deliberate choice, a deliberate action of the of the mind and the heart. A deliberate will. A conscious decision making. So he writes. And he says. You need to in humility. Which means living for the glory of God. And not for self. You need to deliberately. Choose to view others. More significant than yourselves. Now, let me say two things about this. Before I move on. First is the word others. In the context that's a specific word. But in the usage, it's a vague word. And what I mean by that is, contextually, the others he's referring to here is the local church, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. For the Philippians, it was the Philippian Christians. For us, it's the Christians here that comprise Trinity Baptist Church. We are to look at each other and deliberately choose to view each other as more significant than ourselves. But the word that Paul uses is a vague word. It means others in a general sense, which means at some level, it's the default Christian position to treat everybody as more significant than ourselves, to deliberately choose to honor others more than we honor ourselves, to elevate others more than we elevate ourselves, believer and non-believer alike. Now, the second thing I would say about this is the word significant. Significant. What does Paul mean by significant? Well, he doesn't mean physical benefit or blessing because he will touch on that in verse 4. He's not being redundant. Rather, I think when he calls us to count others more significant, he's talking about the value and worth of people based simply on their existence as people. Regardless of their resources or lack thereof, regardless of their benefit to me, or their lack of benefit to me, they are to be regarded as valuable and of worth simply because they're created in the image of God. Now, you know as well as I do, in our world, that requires a qualification attached to it. The Christian position, the Christian standard, the reflection of Christ in our lives in this world, means we treat every single person with respect, dignity, and love. But in our world, we also have to identify that that does not ever mean we compromise the truth of God's Word or condone sinful behavior or living. And the reason I say that is because our world is one in which acceptance and personal value and personal worth is so desperately craved that it's being espoused at every organization and every corner. It's just simply wrongly defined. Our world wants to be valued. People want to be valued. They want to have worth without... Absolute truth. Without being told that their lifestyle is wrong. Without being told that their decisions are destructive. But that's not the Christian way. The Christian way is to treat everyone with dignity, respect, and love while also teaching them the truth of the Gospel. Pointing them to Christ. Calling them to follow God. Because we know We only have true value and true worth in right relation to God Himself. I think when Paul writes to these Philippian Christians, he's saying, deliberately choose to elevate the value and worth of others over your own value and your worth. Now yes, everybody's created equal in God. This is an act of humility though. A voluntary submission, just like Christ. Specifically, again, this comes home to our relationships in the church. You are to look at your brother and your sister in Christ as more significant than yourself. Treat them as more significant than yourself. Think about them as more significant than yourself. Pray for them as if they're more significant than yourself. Serve them as if they're more significant than yourself. I'm not sure I can think of right now a more radical way of living. And yet, it's to be ordinary among God's people. Commonplace. Standard. The question, though, is it true? Is, is, is it true? Are, are you living that way? Do you view your brothers and your sisters as more significant than yourselves? Are you giving your, the, the majority of your thoughts to your brothers and sisters or to self? Again, Mr. Spurgeon says, Men do not quarrel when their ambitions have come to an end. When each one is willing to be least... When everyone desires to place his fellows higher than himself, then there is an end to factions, schisms, and divisions all pass away. Such commands can be hard. Such standards are high. Such commands require sacrifice and self-denial. But the fruit of obedience to such commands is the honoring of Christ in our midst. The reflection of Jesus to one another the building up and encouragement of your brothers and sisters in the faith. The benefit of such living is making the gospel clearly powerful and beautiful as it is. Well, thirdly, in verse 4, The third ingredient for unity in the church is to have eyes open for others. Paul says, let each of you, it's written to a corporate, applied individually, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. As I said earlier, this deals more with the uh, good or well-being or practical resources of a brother or sister. It's the outflow of, Of verse 3. If you're internally counting others more significant. Then that internal counting. Deliberate decision should express itself. In ways such as verse 4. Now interestingly enough. The word interest in verse 4. Is not in the original language. In fact there's nothing there. Paul simply writes, let each of you look to his own and also to others. There's lots of discussion and different varying opinions on what Paul is actually meaning. Most people insert the word interest, which means most of our Bible translations in English use the word interest or a word that's similar to the word interest. I do think that's what Paul's conveying here. We're to look not only to our own, which, side note, we are to look to our own interests, which means we're not to abdicate our responsibility. We're to be good stewards of what God blesses us with. But in a me-centered world, we're not looking just at our interest. We're looking out for the interest of each other. Again, that word other is both specific and vague. In one sense, God's people are to be a benevolent people. We're to look out for the well-being, physical well-being, and physical resources of anybody were to shed the light and the charity of God in a world that desperately needs it. But specifically, the relationships within the church are to be marked by a higher degree of Christian benevolence. We see such behavior in the early church. in Acts chapter two and three and four. What do those strange people keep doing? selling all their possessions and giving the proceeds to each one that has need? We find Paul continuing that same thinking when the church in Jerusalem is poor and needs some financial help. What does he do? He goes to the Gentile churches and starts taking up an offering to send back to Jerusalem. These, these strange human beings take the most precious commodity, reputation, and the second most precious commodity, wealth, and they begin to sacrifice it for each other. And so in verse 4, he says, Let that continue on. In fact, the Philippians have done that just for him. He's going to thank them for it in chapter 4 of this letter. And he uses a deliberate phrase in verse 4, the phrase, Look, look out. It means, just like with count, to deliberately have your eyes open towards the needs of your brothers and sisters. To be watching, to be mindful, to be thinking about such things, considering such things. If a brother or a sister loses a job, are we quick to think of their needs? If a brother or a sister is under the threat of eviction, are we quick to meet their needs? Even more pressing, do you even know if any of your brothers or sisters here have a need? And maybe the flip of that is just as important to ask have you allowed any of your brothers or sisters to know that you have a need? Are we too pr- pr- uh, proud to confess our needs? Or are we too guarded? How might you even care for the well-being and overall good of your brothers and sisters? Those are questions verse 4 forces us to consider. And those are the kinds of acts that promote and preserve unity within the church. So Paul writes verse 3 and verse 4 and he says, Both internally and externally, you have to do certain things to elevate, to preserve, to promote unity, so that in promoting that unity, you might reflect Christ to the world. A world that craves such relationships. Put away those fleshly traits and worldly traits like selfish ambition and conceit. And as Christians, live with a Godward focus, deliberately elevating others above yourself. Those are internal things. And then as you live with each other and walk with each other and grow with each other, Take care of each other. What a barometer of our unity. Meet the needs of one another. Now, all of this, finally, is written with the explanation of verses 5 through 11, which is the example of Christ himself. Which means none of these things, none of this unity, none of this casting off selfishness and putting on humility and looking out for each other, none of that is possible without Jesus. Only in our union with Christ can we live to such a standard. Christ not only exemplified it, Christ not only deliberately chose to live such a way himself, Christ is the one who enables us to live that way to each other. But even more than that, church, is our union with Christ not only makes this a possibility, our union with Christ makes such living the expectation. In other words, the commands of verse 3 and 4, as trying and difficult as they may be, are not ever optional, they're a command. And they are worth the effort because they display the power of God's redemptive work on our hearts. They display a life changed by the love of Jesus Christ. They display as clear evidence the sanctifying work of God's Spirit. What else could explain such living. In a world that cares only about self-advancement, promoting self, living for self, looking out for self, God's people are called to a different way. God's people are called to love each other. To deliberately choose to honor God by looking out for each other and counting others more significant. And I guarantee in doing so, we not only please God, we build each other up. And in building each other up, we make the gospel attractive. Our Father, help us to be conformed to the image of Christ, who though he was in the form of a man, was certainly equal with you. Yet he emptied himself and took on flesh for our salvation and for your glory. Help us, Father, to live like our Savior. To be mindful of each other. To be willing to lose an argument. To be willing to be be quiet over an opinion. To be willing to serve. We pray for our unity. That in times of peace and times of hostility, we would be bound together a one-souled people. And we would preserve and promote that unity through living like You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.